Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Medical University of South Carolina's Science Never Sleeps podcast. This edition of our podcast highlights a central mission of our academic health center, harnessing the talent, ingenuity, and passion of our research faculty to seek the answers, discover the solutions, and innovate the future to change what's possible in biomedical health care for those we serve. And so, we have a two-part discussion. First, Dr. Sunil Patel, Chair of the Department of Neurosurgery and world-renowned neurological surgeon, will discuss the innovative Zucker Institute for Applied Neurosciences, better known as Ian, a neuro-focused biotech accelerator that aims to jumpstart the development process of the medical devices. The second part of our discussion centers on the life cycle of research discovery. From the basic science laboratory, or bench as we call it, through the translation of that research into clinical care, or as is commonly known, the patient bedside. Our guest, Dr. Chip Norris, a basic scientist in the Department of Regenerative Medicine, the bench. Dr. Patel, as clinician representing the translation of discovery. And Courtney Gensemmer, doctoral student and patient, the bedside. Showcasing the process that allows MUSC to make a difference in the lives of our communities. First up, Zian, the Zucker Institute for Applied Neurosciences, brings together the worlds of engineering and medicine to speed the translation of innovative technology into the clinic, hence the descriptor, Biotech Accelerator. It is a bold and visionary program developed with the Zucker family of Charleston and Dr. Patel. Welcome, Dr. Patel. Yeah, thank you for having me. Dr. Patel, the vision of Zian came out of a heartbreaking experience. Can you share its origins and your vision for the Institute? Sure. I uh, Several years ago, it's almost uh, 15 years ago, I treated a patient, uh, uh, Mr. Zucker, who, who suffered from a very bad brain cancer. Mr. Zucker, for those who may know him and those who don't, was a very innovative man, businessman, and very creative, had over 100 patents himself. And one of the conversations, recurring conversations with him during the months, last few months of his life uh, with this very fatal cancer, were his frustration with medicine uh, not moving new ideas through quickly, whether they worked or not. And he relayed to me how industry very quickly puts ideas through and, and sees if they're going to work or not work and quickly commercialize them. He said medicine was slower. Well, obviously in healthcare, you know, a lot more science needs to be done. But to some extent, he was very right, especially when it came to neurosurgery or surgical specialties where we're thinking of new implants or new tools to help us do surgery. We, we were much, much slower. And as an academic healthcare center and a, and a professor or physician working in one, you know, our, our sciences tend to be slow. But the other missing piece was really having engineering minds and people with commercial minds working together with physicians and surgeons to help them accelerate their idea, meaning to develop the engineering aspects of their conceptual ideas into prototyping devices and seeing if they would work. And basically out in the real world, that's called an accelerator or a biotech accelerator, as you mentioned. But that is a new thing 
for an academic healthcare center. Now, a lot of large university centers all over the world, and I've traveled all the way to Spain, a couple of centers in the United States that tried this, but it sort of failed. Hundreds of millions of dollars were spent on developing this, but it didn't have the flavor and did not succeed as well. So we thought we would try it differently at a very small level rather than build a huge $100 million building to, within the Department of Neurosurgery and Neurology, hire engineers with that kind of frame of mind of developing and commercializing products and working every day with the surgeons and, and having them live here within the department, within the clinics, within the operating room. And that's the beginning of Zian. It needed an infusion of dollars with the Zucker family. Finally, after he passed, uh, Jerry Zucker passed, and about a year later, his wife Anita donated money, and we started Zian. And um, it's been a very successful thing, having the engineers work hand-in-hand -hand with the trainees and young faculty and professors in neurosurgery and in neurology. We've been able to patent several ideas. Many have been already commercialized. And what's most satisfying is that once there was an idea, and now within three years, we get to use that concept, that instrument, in, in better care for our patients. And everybody's benefited from it, uh, especially the patients. So that's the background on Zine. Which is an incredible opportunity. Um, and you mentioned that other academic health centers have tried and failed, uh, but you guys decided to start with a, a, a very particular foci, if you will. Um, so, how would you um, how would you explain your success? So, I think what makes things successful. I think you're right. Uh, anytime you want to build something, you you ought to incubate that concept. And that the, the development of this accelerator didn't mean that we need to serve 800 physicians at one go. I thought we would try with a small group of people. The other, other reason why it succeeded is because uh, the Zian was not an isolated group of engineers just working on their own. Uh, every day and once a week, I met with Zian engineers and the inventor and and pushed the processes through. Um, you know, many times uh, when you have R&D research labs in companies making instruments or implants, these companies are remote to where we work. Here in Zian, we made that as part of what we do in neurosurgery. So like I would have a research lab and meet my research group once a week, at least once a day, we did that with Zian. And so we were able to drive the process and push both engineers and the inventors to keep working on their concepts. And I think that's very important. Uh, if you look at if you look at the uh, foundation for research, which is the place where we file our disclosures at MUSC, once you file it, it's a piece of paper with a signature sitting on a shelf somewhere. That doesn't develop anything. You can say, yeah, I've filed a patent, but that doesn't do anything. What Zian is, is the engineer then takes that idea and, and makes a prototype. And two days later, the surgeon meets with them. And then every week, I come into the room and we have a meeting. We have an I2C meeting. And that's where we look at each concept, each prototype, and say, where are we with this? How's it going? 
What's the next step? Look at the inventor. You're supposed to have done this. What do you think about this iteration? What, why would this not work? What's the animal test show, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there needs to be a two-way street here. Engineers on their own can't do anything, surgeons on their own, but you've got to, and you've got to have a driving force and almost a, uh, a frequent regular meeting that drives the research, um, just like any research lab would have. So I think that was what made Zian successful. And engineers are supposed to come to the operating room where the surgeons are, and surgeons are supposed to go to the engineering lab where the 3D prototype machine is and meet with each other. And so engineers need to start thinking like surgeons and surgeons need to start thinking like engineers and when they work together i think you can have a successful uh, thing happen and i think that was very important there in the zian engineers are office right inside the department i was the only and still remain the only department in the college of medicine at MUSU who has engineers yeah they're they're they actually have official appointments with us but they work in zian so it was a little bit of a out-of-the-box concept. When somebody says you can't do it, that's the key word for me. I can. <laughs> I just that, needed to be told you can't do it. And when somebody says you can't do it, that's when I know I definitely can. So I that's love, what we that's, did. I, that's why I love um, our faculty, our research faculty, our clinical faculty working together to make that difference. It, it, it's uh, you know, it also distinguishes us from other uh, healthcare uh, institutions as an academic health center. And I think you've said it splendidly many a time that, you know, the, this cross-pollinization of ideas and the dynamic nature of the, the research process is, um, it, it really, it just lends itself to that innovation and discovery. So you've got a product, you've, you've got together with all of your colleagues what is Zian's timeline to market on a product? So the uh, the uh, fastest we were able to take something, it was a small needle-like thing that we use for neurophysiology, it was 18 months. And we licensed it and we sold a full first product in 18 months. That's a, <laughs> that's a dream come true. I mean, we're, we won't see that kind of trophy in the near future, but, um, you know, and we have other things that have been patented and licensed, but waiting for the, the company or the who we've partnered with or licensed to, to further develop it and that sort of stuff. But 18 months was the quickest. There are some things, there are at least three things that have been already licensed that are about to hit the market within the next six months. Of course, the pandemic sort of slowed everything down out in the real world, but it didn't stop us. Zian continue to meet every week, even during the pandemic. Creativity and invention does not stop because of a virus. You got that right. Now I would like to pivot to the other side of our academic health center, a much slower process than a biotech accelerator, but no less important and life-saving. I am speaking of the third leg of the tripartite mission of MUSC the research that moves the needle forward for better understanding of disease, better treatment, and in the best cases, cures, and the reason why we do Science Never Sleeps podcasts. Dr. Russell Chip Norris is a professor in the Department of Regenerative Medicine and Cell Biology at MUSC, and if I may say, a Renaissance man and innovative scientist. 
Joining him today at the microphone is Courtney Gensemmer, a fourth-year doctoral student in his laboratory and the lead researcher of an uncommon connective tissue disorder called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, or EDS. Chip and Courtney share a unique interest. Courtney has the EDS disease. Chip has relatives with similar concerns. Rounding out the team, Dr. Patel specializes in surgical treatment of the disease and has treated Courtney. So, let's start with a basic understanding of EDS and what is its prevalence. Dr. Norris, would you provide the background? Sure, happy to be here. Uh, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome uh, are a group of connective tissue diseases. Uh, these diseases affect um, joints and um, ligaments, and the, the specific type we're, we're studying is known as hypermo uh, hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Uh, it's one of 14 different types of EDS, and it's by far the most common. Uh, the prevalence isn't really well understood. It's conservatively estimated at, at affecting one in 500 or people, but um, we believe it's, it's really far more common than one in 500. Uh, people with HEDS, as it's called, have uh, a, a number of problems in their, uh, in their joints as well as other areas of uh, their body. And really the disease affects uh, collagen, and collagen can be viewed as, as the glue that keeps us all together. So any organ or tissue that has collagen will have a defect. And so patients have widespread chronic pain mm. because of joint laxity. They dislocate their joints. They have GI problems, um, uh, gastrointestinal problems. They have cranial cervical instability and Chiari malformation, which are, and, and tethered cord, which are neurological problems that Dr. Patel um, treats uh, at, at MUSC. So it really is a disease that affects many different uh, organs and tissues um, and is chronic. It lasts the, the, the patient's entire life. And so we need to really get an understanding of what causes the disease uh, and, and how can we, uh, what can we develop to make um, treatments more, more relevant. I think one of the things that um, kind of astounds me is um, if you look at Courtney, one of the, um, the patients that is, suffers from EDS, here's this vital, attractive woman that from the outside, who would know? Who would know the, the issues that she's dealt with? And so I think it's important for the public to know that this is not a disease that's visible per se. The fact that, that you think there's uh, more than one in 500 suffering from this disease, what makes you think so? So the, the diagnosing of patients with EDS is a big problem. Um, it's not well understood by physicians. Mm. And um, so it, it's hard to diagnose. It's a clinical diagnosis. And since it is a multi-system disease, these patients have to see a lot of different types of doctors. And these doctors, if you go in for chronic pain or if you go in for a GI or a cardiovascular problem, these physicians are not linking the dots together. Uh, they're not really coordinating, co coordinating the different phenotypes into one syndromic disease. 
And so we think it's far more common than one in 500 because the physicians just aren't making uh, the connections between the different types of, of defects in these patients. Anything else to add? And well, m m the question also comes up, is it a genetic disease? And if so, um, I guess there's no when you're going for a physical or whatever, when you first kind of present with some of these issues, there's no, I mean, do you, Courtney, in your case, did you say to somebody, um, oh, by the way, this runs in my family? Um, because uh, if, you, if you wouldn't mind telling your story, you, you didn't really get diagnosed until very recently. Yeah, so I, um, I was diagnosed when I was 19 years old. Um, I had signs of EDS, you know, my whole life. Um, but it wasn't until I had multiple, you know, major injuries in a row that someone finally sort of connected those dots. But it actually took me being diagnosed for um, my father and other people in my family to then get a diagnosis. Um, and, and one of the reasons, too, is that um, women are more severely affected than men. Mm. So in our patient registry right now, we have um, over 1,500 patients from um, across the United States, and roughly around 95% of our um, participants are women. And so um, in, a, in a lot of those families, there are men who are affected as well, but they probably would have no idea had um, a woman in their family who was more severely affected been diagnosed. Why is that? Why women more than men? Is that part of the question you're you're trying to answer? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, there are are definitely hormonal influences on connective tissue and um, joint laxity and things like that. So, we are in the process of investigating how hormones are playing a role in um, females being more severely affected. Yeah, and getting back to the genetics question, it's it's um, it, it clearly has a genetic component. Um, there is clear heritability that we know now for the disease in our registry, which has really been um, clinically revealing um, for these patients is that uh, eighty percent or so of the individuals in our in our registry report a family history. So you know that something has been passed down from generation to generation. So you could say it was serendipitous for Courtney to venture into your lab to discuss research options. You initially were focused on mitral valve prolapse, but serendipity is sometimes the catalyst for discovery, and you two have made some very promising discoveries related to EDS. Even Miss America, Camille Schreier, wanted to meet you. Take us through the process that got you to this really promising next step. And I ask that because if you're talking about genetics, what I hear all the time now is, you know, um, trying to find that biomarker related to a disease or something. So talk to us about what you, you've come across so far and how Miss America got engaged. Yeah, so to go back a little bit um, to sort of how we, how we started this, um, I was a new PhD student at MUSC and during our first year, we um, do these lab rotations to sort of figure out what type of research we want to do and what research mentor and lab is a good fit for us. And so for the new students, uh, Chip had come in and introduced himself and said, you know, I've been at MUSC for a long time. If any of you need help navigating graduate school, I'd be happy to, you know, help you out and, and meet with you. And so 
I came in and I had no idea what I wanted to do. <laughs> and so I was like, you know, this guy seemed really nice. I'm going to go talk to him and see if he has any advice on, you know, labs to look into or, or what might be a good fit for me. And when I walked into his office, I actually didn't even know that he studied mitral valve prolapse. So when he told me that, I, I shared that, you know, members of my family had mitral valve prolapse as part of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And um, as a scientist, his first question was like, oh, what gene mutation does your family have? Right. And right away I was like, oh, well, it's, you know, it's a hypermobile type of EDS and they don't know the genetic cause yet. And his eyes kind of lit up and he was like, oh, like, do you want to try and find that? And <laughs> I was like, oh, uh, yeah, sure. OK. And, you know, as you can see, we're here now. So we've been working on this for the, the past four years. Um, but it really started with an initial genetic discovery based on one family with hypermobile EDS, where we identified a strong candidate gene for the disease. And so we've been working on that for about the past year. We, we really wanted to make an impact on the EDS community um, outside of just what we were doing in the lab. And to me as a patient, that's always been really important to me. I know the patients go years without an accurate diagnosis, um, struggle to have doctors take their symptoms seriously, yeah. and don't really know what's going on with themselves. So we wanted to make an impact on the EDS community from an outreach and advocacy and awareness um, side of things. And we got in touch with Camille Schreier, Miss America 2020, because um, she had been outspoken about her experience with having EDS herself and uh, hypermobile EDS specifically, which is what we've been working on. And so um, we were really excited to talk to her and she's actually um, in a science graduate program in pharmacy school right now. So she was so interested in the science that we were doing um, and she was able to come to MUSC and spend time in the lab with us, but also um, help us online through social media and through um, things even on the MUSC campus, really spread awareness about EDS and um, how people are affected and, and help us with fundraising efforts to um, really help us be able to expand our research and also reach for even bigger goals, um, like the idea of developing a center for EDS at right. MUSC. Which is very exciting. And um, I think um, you'll agree with me that an academic health center like ours, the only one in the state, is a prime location to make that happen. You've got your basic scientists, you've got your clinical scientists, you've got the hospital. It all comes together and a great, um, you know, di cross disciplines. What do you think, Chip? No, I think we uh, absolutely need to to work on developing a, a center. Um, that, you know, the, the challenge with, with EDS patients is it's a very complicated disease and uh, oftentimes they, they don't, they're not able to find appropriate care in their own city and so they have to travel and they have to travel to see orthopedists they have to travel to see a, a gastroenterologist they have to and these are travels that go across state lines um, it, because there is no real designated um, center with a holistic approach of treating the disease where where we can really treat all the different uh, comorbidities and, and um, you know, tissue problems with, with this disease. And so developing a center uh, here at MUSC would be life-changing for those patients with EDS. It would make MUSC a destination center um, for the hundreds of thousands of people in, in the U.S. alone that, that have, have the disease. Um, and you, you, you pair this, you pair the, the, the physician, physician expertise, which here we have um, a number of physicians who know what the disease is and know how to treat it. 
And so you pair that with a molecular diagnostics lab, a genetics lab, um, and then you can really provide um, groundbreaking discoveries as well as groundbreaking treatments that ultimately are going to be, be really beneficial for, for patients and patient care. How um, you guys just had this one great breakout discovery. What's your prognosis about how long it will take you to get to some place where you really have something that can go to clinical trial? Uh, so that's um, obviously a, a goal. There are, are a couple ways to approach um, the clinical trials. One, a, a big problem with patients with EDS is diagnosing. Mm-hmm. And having a diagnostic tool will change the lives of these people. Um, outside of the medical management of the disease, having a diagnostic tool, it takes on average 14 years for a patient with EDS to get diagnosed. Wow. And that's tragic, really. That's 14 years from the, the onset of symptoms. So it's not people are on average diagnosed at 14 years of age. That means that from the first time they really had a lot of problems and showed signs of the disease, it took 14 years until they were accurately diagnosed with hypermobile EDS. Not to mention that there might have been misdiagnoses or um, other things in that process that delayed their proper medical care too. Yeah, so it says 14 years during that 14 year period um, where these patients don't know and they um, you know, engage in activities that may actually be very detrimental to their, um, their life. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it's, a, it's important to get diagnosed, especially if you have somebody in your family who has been diagnosed, the chances of having it are, are much higher. Um, so having a diagnostic tool is, is really important. Um, our genetic discoveries, I think, are a first step in establishing a, a, a diagnostic tool. Um, putting a time frame on it is always challenging. Right. Um, yeah. and, and I don't like to be held to time <laughs> frames. Um, but, but, you know, I, certainly within the next few years is, is, is possible, uh, if not sooner. Um, is there such a thing as, uh, I'm just thinking of something, you know, how... Um, uh, sometimes you can uh, look online and you're trying to figure out, you know, what I got some problem. What am I, you know? And you go through a checklist. Do you have you guys come up with a checklist like, if you have this and this, you know, if you keep going through and saying if you said yes to this and you know, like one of those kind of um, maps, uh, it, would that be a potential first step for people to say, hey, I need to look into this more? Yeah, so there um, currently for clinical diagnosis of hypermobile EDS, there is um, a checklist that was put out by the EDS Society in 2017. Um, it, it is a good checklist and it's helpful, but it could definitely be improved. And I know that there are clinicians out there working on ways to improve this. Um, but we have also worked hard on our lab website to put together a list of resources for um, both patients and clinicians, um, even things for physicians who are interested, like CME credits, to um, increase their understanding of EDS. And then things for patients, um, lots of resources to um, things on how to accurately be evaluated for EDS, the diagnostic criteria, um, as well as links to our literature review that we published on the disease. Um, and even um, some additional things on like comorbidities that are associated with EDS for patients to reference. So I want it to be clear with our audience that it started out 
at the bench in your basic science lab, Dr. Norris. You lucked out and got a great uh, doctoral student who um, could be part of this really exciting discovery. You pulled in um, neurosurgeon Dr. Sunil Patel to help with the clinical aspect of things. And this is what the audience needs to understand, that sometimes it takes a long time from the basic bench side of the house to the bedside, but that's what we're really good at here. Courtney, how does it feel for you personally to be at the forefront of what could potentially be the beginning of the end of a disease that has compromised your quality of life for some time? Um, it's it's really exciting because I think that being able to have a, a patient perspective in the lab um, really, for me, obviously, the research means a lot, but it really also gives meaning to what we're doing to other people in the lab, too. Um, I think in a lot of in a lot of labs, you're studying a very specific protein in a, in a disease, and it's so withdrawn from the patient experience that you can often miss things that are really important. But I also recognize that I am, you know, in terms of the spectrum of severity of EDS, I'm really more towards the middle, and because of that, I'm able to have this opportunity to do this. And we also wanted to give that opportunity to other students. So um, I just wanted to mention the, the intern program we did in our lab over the summer. We actually had an internship program specifically for undergraduate and graduate students who also have hypermobile EDS, wow. who have an interest in research or medicine or some aspect of clinical care. And we had four students that were chosen, and we actually had a lot more applicants than we anticipated. Wow. We wanted to take three students, and we had to take four because they were so awesome. And we had them in the lab um, working on various aspects of EDS because what our big goal here um, with the internship program, not only to have them contribute to the research, but to go into their careers later having a really good understanding of the disease so that they can take that information and teach others in their programs and in their hospitals and wherever they are later to kind of increase the number of people out there who understand what EDS is. So hopefully we can kind of start at the bottom and improve patient care from that aspect as well. And that's what it's all about. Yeah. And that's why we're here. And that's why we do Science Never Sleeps podcast. This, dear listeners, is why science never sleeps at the Medical University of South Carolina. Long hours, hard work, peer review, frustrations and triumphs are all part of the research endeavor, which begins with the question why and ends hopefully with a patient, family, community living a healthy and happy life. Thank you to the Zucker family for their generous support of ZN, and Dr. Sunil Patel, Dr. Chip Norris, and especially doctoral students Courtney Gensemer and Allison Troughton for their generosity of time, their commitment to finding the answers, and for sharing this story. I also want to thank our faithful listeners. This is our last podcast of 2021, and my last podcast as your host. I am retiring from the Medical University of South Carolina. However, Science Never Sleeps will continue in the new year with more fascinating discussions. It has been a privilege to be by your side to discuss the biomedical health questions of the day, to raise your understanding of and interest in the people, processes, and science behind the research at MUSC. Special and heartfelt thanks to the Medical University of South Carolina the Office of the Vice President for Research under the guidance of Drs. Kathleen Brady and Lori McMahon, 
to our incredible and truly talented director of academic media, Jonathan Coltis, and especially to our esteemed faculty, whose work both at the bench and the bedside continue to fuel hope for the future, because at MUSC, science never sleeps. Thank you so much for your support. Stay well.